Well, we are officially uh, 21 days away from Christmas morning. Confession's good for the soul. Anybody not have their tree up? Would you just raise your hand up? Yeah, if I look around, these people need Jesus. Amen? That is not true, as a matter of fact. But uh, here's what is true, that this time of the year, everyone needs patience. Some of you are looking forward to gathering uh, together with extended family and work associates. Others, not so much. <laughs> Statistically speaking, uh, in this room, there is more than one Cousin Eddie represented amongst our collective families. Am I right? And if you don't know what that reference is, Google it. It's the movie they show in heaven every day, all year round. Uh, patience is required for dealing with people that you try to pretend the rest of the year you're not actually related to. It requires patience. Patience is required for the long lines and the heavy traffic and the pressure of the schedule and all the activities that this season dictates. And for some, patience is required to Endure the suffering associated in a season that reminds you that you've experienced loss. And whatever the case is, uh, we're all going to need some measure of patience over the next few weeks, probably to a greater degree than we have the rest of the year. But here's the dilemma. Patience is not like a light switch that you can flip it on whenever you need it or need to call it to attention. Patience is cultivated over the long haul in our hearts as we grow in Christ's likeness. That's the Bad news, patience is warmed up in the crock pot. It is not produced in the microwave, even though we love efficiency. But the good news is this, is that God's word is sufficient to cultivate the patience needed to navigate life in a fallen world, even during the holidays. And so turn with me to James chapter 5, as we're going to continue our series in the book of James. And this is the 11th message in this series. And we'll wrap it up next week with a final message at the end of chapter 5. And so as James is Wrapping up his correspondence, remember he's writing to Jewish Christians who are experiencing an incredible amount of persecution and opposition. And so in the midst of that, he's leaning into them, encouraging them to cultivate patience in the midst of their suffering. He's going to talk about why we should be patient in the text today, talk about how we can know if we're being patient with others. And he's also going to point us to some people who serve as examples of what patience looks like in the midst of a difficult season here in verses 7 through 12. And so let's pick up the text this morning in James chapter 5, beginning in verse 7. It says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Author J.H. Wright, Christopher J.H. Wright, uh, wrote a book called Cultivating the Fruit of the Spirit, and patience is one of the fruits of the Spirit. And he gives us two definitions in that book that are very helpful as we begin to wrap our minds around this idea of Christ-honoring patience. And the first one, he said, patience is the ability to put up with the weakness and foibles. I had to look that word up. It meant minor irritations or weaknesses. 
of others and to show forbearance toward them without quickly getting irritated or angry enough to want to fight back. And he gives a second definition of patience, and he says, it's the ability to endure for a long time, whatever opposition and suffering may come your way, and to show perseverance without wanting retaliation or revenge. And I would also add to that without letting bitterness settle uh, in our hearts. Now, James here in verses 7 through 12, uh, he talks about patience in two different ways as well, but he uses the same Greek word in both contexts where we see the English word uh, patience, and it's the word makrothumos. And literally what the word makrothumos means, it means you have a long fuse. You are slow to get angry, slow to get irritated. You are patient with people and circumstances. Uh, the word definition is endurance, constancy, steadfastness, perseverance, forbearance, long-suffering, or slowness in avenging wrongs. Now, full disclosure, I am not a patient person. Uh, when I start feeling sick this weekend, you know, the first thing I told Tasha, I don't have time to get sick, right? Who's got time for that? There's all kinds of stuff happening on now. I don't get angry very often. Very rarely do I get angry. Uh, but I don't like to wait for things to happen. I like to make things happen. I, that's uh, me this morning. The, so the bad news is this. Patience is not natural to all of our hearts. There are fallen hearts. The natural gravitational pull of our hearts is towards selfishness. And a selfish person isn't long-suffering or slow to get angry with anyone. They want what they want, when they want, how they want it. And if you don't give it to them, they will let you know the opposite of patience. That's the bad news. But here's the good news. Jesus is available and lives inside of us. Amen? And he's empowering us to do what we could not do and what we could not do apart from his work inside of us. That's where our hope for patience comes from. Not our willpower, but Christ in us empowering us to do what we would not do and could not do. So James breaks down the call to patience into two main areas of life. And the first one is this, is that we should be patient with difficult people. This is the one that perhaps is the most prevalent uh, because we're living amongst people who are very different than we are. Have you noticed that? I don't know about you, but I am deeply convinced that the world would be a much better place if everyone were a lot more like me. Amen? And you believe that too as your pastor, right? But God actually had the audacity to create people who see things differently than you do. And some of them even have the same last name as you. How dare he? Let me ask you a question. Have you made the unfortunate discovery that the people in your house are sinners? Have you found, you may be sitting next to one this morning, newsflash. And you put a bunch of sinful people together who naturally are selfish. You put them into close contact with each other and you're going to have some moments of conflict in that house. Or what we call our house, intense moments of fellowship are going to happen, right? That's true in, the, in your house. That's true in the church. That's true in your work context. That's true in your neighborhood. That's true in your school. The reality is this. There's, there's all kinds of opportunities for relational conflict and difficult people. And here's the bad news. You and I are one of them. We want what we want when we want it. But here's the reality. Relationships are a mess worth making because that's how disciples are made. 
It's not just getting the right information, listening to your favorite person online or your favorite podcast or doing some type of study. No, God makes disciples through the vehicle of people. And so relationships, while difficult and irritating, are a mess worth making. That's actually the title of one of my favorite books. And so, so what he's saying here is what's going to be needed is patience in the form of forbearance and long suffering. Look at verses 7 through 9 again. He says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also, be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord's at hand. Don't grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Now, just a couple quick observations before we get into how to cultivate patience and how to know when it's not actually happening. Observation number one, James tells us not once but twice to be patient. Now here's the rule of Bible study. Anytime something is repeated in the scriptures, it's for the sake of emphasis. And so two times, and then it gives a, an indirect reference about the patience of farmers as an example to uh, model. And he says two times to be patient. Notice what he does not say. He doesn't make any qualifiers. He says, hey, if you're around people who are easy love, be patient. Hey, if you're a person who's just naturally laid back and you've got a type B personality, you should be patient. No, what's he say? He says, be patient when you're not feeling up to it. Be patient all the time with everyone. He says, uh, there is no excuse for personality or anything like that. Why? Because patience is not a personality trait. If you're listening, say amen. Patience is not a personality trait. It's a fruit of the Spirit. And so even the most hard-charging type A person in the world, by spending time with Jesus and living the Spirit-filled life, can display the overflow of patience. And so he says, be patient with everyone at all times, even if that's not your natural bent. Observation number two, James tells us how long to be patient, and depending on who you ask, this is bad news. Right? Because everybody can be patient for a little bit, am I right? You ever get in a place where someone's kid is acting a fool? Like for a little bit, I'm like totally cool. I had little kids. Like after the third hour, I'm a whip a kid. Amen? I'm going to be a surrogate spanker for the cause of Christ. But what's he say here in the text? I feel that ibuprofen kicking in. What's he say? How long should I continue to be patient with people? Here's the answer, and it's probably bad news for selfish hearts like mine. What's he say in the text? Until the coming of the Lord. What's he saying? Patience is required until Jesus comes back. And so what he's saying is the lifelong journey between the point of salvation until Jesus returns is to cultivate a life of patience. And here's why that's so important. Because when we live with forbearing, long-suffering patience with difficult people, guess what? It's how we display the glory of Jesus to the world who's watching around us. Because the world is not patient. The world is fault-finding. The world is cancel culture. We don't cancel people. We redeem people. Amen? And so he says, until Christ comes back, if you want to live different in a world that is not patient with people where self-centeredness and selfish and self-promotion reigns, then be patient with difficult people instead of discarding them. Be patient with difficult people instead of discarding them until Jesus comes back. It's the way that we live different in the world. And he used an illustration. 
And so many times in the Bible you see these uh, agricultural illustrations because that's the world they were living in. And so in verses 7 and 8, he talks about the illustration, the cycle of farming. Uh, Tasha and I, early on in our, our marriage, well, it's early, I guess it was uh, midway point of our marriage, we moved into a property that had some land, and we were renting there, and we were going to plant a garden. We never planted a garden. And so if you've never planted a garden, wisdom says the first year, plant the biggest garden you can with stuff you're never going to eat. Am I right? Can I tell you a secret? <laughs> we go out there one day. And they're out there. We've not been tending to our garden as we should have been. Mostly Tasha. I just want to point that out, all right? And there's zucchini on the ground that are the size of railroad ties. You know what I'm talking about? And I'm proud as a peacock. I, my mom goes out. I go, look at what we grew. My mom goes, those aren't good for eating, honey. Don't, don't eat those, all right? You let them go too long. And what I realize is this. I'm doing all this work to save about 13 cents at the grocery. Am I right? I don't have the patience to be a farmer. I'm an eater, not a farmer. Praise God. What's he say about a farmer? Why does he give that illustration? Because if you're going to farm effectively over the long haul, then guess what? Patience is going to be required. Sometimes there's too much rain and sometimes there's not enough. Sometimes there's too much heat and sometimes there's a late frost. Sometimes the weather cooperates and the harvest is abundant. Sometimes the harvest is marginal at best. And so the farmer knows that, listen, at the end of the day, I'm going to do what I've always done, and I'm going to trust the Lord for His provision, and there's some patience required, because no matter how much I go out there and stare at them, pray for them, yell at them, whatever the case is, those things are not going to grow any faster. I can only control so much. Now, what has that got to do with relationships? Because you can't change another person's heart. You can't make a person less irritating or selfish. You can't save a person. You can't control a person. You can't make a person repent. You can't put the desire in a child's heart to want, make them want to obey their parents. You can't exercise biblical faith on behalf of someone else. And so patience is required, but it is a hope-filled patience. Because here's what we believe about the power of the gospel, that Jesus can do more in a moment than we can do in a lifetime. And so what do we do in the meantime? We pray, we live with integrity, we model Christ for them, and we trust Jesus who loves them more than anyone else who's ever lived. We patiently love that person. Now, love is not the absence of accountability. Don't hear me preaching that. But we patiently place that person in the Lord's hand, knowing and believing that only He can change their hearts. Now, if you're here and you say, I don't think it's that frustrating to try and change someone else's heart, here's what I know about you. You don't have any kids. Amen? <laughs> right? I remember several years ago talking with someone, brother in the Lord, who's a little older than me, and we were at lunch, and we were just talking about the difficulty of raising kids, and he was vulnerable and shared some parenting challenges, and I could see the pain on his face, and he began to tell me some stories and walk through some situations. And then, literally, a smile washes over his face. He leans back in the booth, and he said, but you know what? I just put all that in the Lord's hands because no one loves my child more than Jesus does. And he was totally at peace with that. And here's what he was saying. I can't change them. Only Jesus can do that, but I can patiently love them until he does. It's not an accident that when the description of love is spelled out in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 
The first attribute of biblical love is love is patient. That's not a mistake. It's the first attribute spelled out in 1 Corinthians 13. And 1 John says the world will know that we're Christians by our love. 1 Corinthians 13 says the first attribute of love is patience. And so what does that mean? That means if you're going to live for Jesus in a fallen, self-centered world and love people well who are near to you and far from God, patience is going to be required to be cultivated in your heart. Listen to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idols. Again, there's correction in love. Encourage the faint-hearted. It's coming alongside. And listen to this. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. What does that mean? you got someone who's stubborn, obstinate against the things of God. You admonish them, offer them correction, but you patiently love them until they do, until they repent. you got a person uh, who is faint-hearted, going through suffering. You don't just come alongside. You don't get over that. Get yourself together. No, you just encourage them because they're faint-hearted. If someone is weak, you help them. You don't shame them or scold them. You help them. And all of those things are exercises in patience. Because love is patient. Verse 15, he says, See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. And so what does it mean? That if I'm going to live for God's glory on earth, then I'm looking for ways to be patient. And here's what that means. I'm going to allow space for other people's shortcomings. Even the people who have the same last name as me. Now, before we go on to our next point, let me ask this question. How do you know when you lack patience? Some of you know because the people that you know tell you, right? Doctors told me on a couple occasions, you're not the most patient person I've ever met. I said, no, but I am God's gift to you. Amen. That's why I remind you of that. So how do I know when I lack patience? Well, the answer's where the answer always is. It's in the text. Go to verse 9. Look at verse 9. What does he say? Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Now, everybody look up here and listen closely. The clearest indicator that patience has not been cultivated in your heart is that grumbling constantly comes out of your mouth. Let me repeat that. The clearest indicator that patience has not taken root in your heart is that grumbling constantly comes out of your mouth. And since patience is the fruit of the Spirit, you know what grumbling and complaining says? Is that I'm not living the Spirit-filled life. Because if I were, the natural overflow of the Spirit-filled life, pursuing intimacy with Jesus, would be the display consistently of the fruit of the Spirit, not with perfection, but there's a pattern of displaying the Fruit of the Spirit, and part of the fruit of the Spirit is patience. And that patience extends to the people with the same last name as you. Extends to the people who don't vote the same as you do. All those are included in the one another command when he says, do not grumble against one another. It's what it looks like to model Jesus in the face of opposition. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 20 through 24, he committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. Now clearly he's talking about the words that come out of his mouth. Jesus, who Peter tells us, listen to this. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. 
When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he trusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. And so we're pressed relationally. We're tempted to be impatient with others. Remember the patience of the farmer who trusts God's provision. And remember the patience of Jesus who never grumbled as his accusers. Even though it would have been factually accurate to do so, he trusted in the justice of a good and faithful God. I know it's hard, but pursue Jesus, not patience. And patience will be the overflow in dealing with difficult people. And secondly, here in the text, James gives us another form of patience, and that's this. Be patient with uncontrollable circumstances. Are there any control freaks in the room? I'm just, my hand, both my hands are up. I like the challenge of engineering outcomes. I like finding problems or challenges and finding a way to fix it and to make it better than it was when I found it. That's what energizes me about leadership. But here's what else I know as well. That left unchecked, that very quickly can become an idol called control. And so what do I, how do I wrestle with that? So why is patience required for life in a fallen world? Because patience is an open declaration that I'm going to patiently persevere in my faith, stick to my convictions, love people who don't love me back. Why? Because, here's what I believe, that God is still sovereign. That God is not up in heavens looking out at the world, wringing his hands saying, oh, I had no idea things were going to turn out that way. If you're freaked out about the world we're living in, not, not sad, we should be sad, but freaked out, what you're displaying to unbelievers around you is you really don't believe that the God you serve is sovereign and good. And there are lots of things to be grieved about, but I actually believe that even those things, God is working those things together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. And so when the world seems chaos, when your world gets flipped upside down, how do you live with patience? Because you belong to a God who is sovereign over all of your circumstances. And I don't always know how that's going to turn out, but I trust the character of God. That's biblical faith, believing before you see the outcome. And so James is teaching, he says, hey, here's how, how do you remain under these circumstances, not explode in anger or panic or fear. He's teaching us that when we're squeezed by life's circumstances, we don't have to just grin and bear it and grit our teeth. He says, no, you can walk through suffering and challenging circumstances with an expectant hope. Now, why should there be an expectant hope when we're suffering? Here's why. Because that is the promise of God. One of my favorite verses in the Bible to memorize when it's walking through suffering uh, is found in Romans chapter 5, all right? Listen to this beautiful, incredible, hope-filled text in the midst of your suffering. Here's what it says, Romans 5, verses 3 through 5. You should write this down and memorize this. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Because here's the promise, knowing that suffering produces endurance. If we remain under that suffering, don't turn away in bitterness or rebellion. Suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. 
And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Do you see the pathways lined out? In all these years of pastoring, no one's ever come to my office and said, hey, I'm struggling. And I've said, why are you struggling? I've just got so much hope, I don't know what to do with myself. Never. Right? Like if someone were to come in and say that, here's what I know about them without any uh, evidence or any uh, examination or anything. They've been doing a little day drinking. Am I right? Everybody wants hope. But do you see the pattern or the pathway that he's laid out to get to a hope-filled life? What's it start with? Answers in the text, by the way. Suffering. Suffer, that's what's wrong with the prosperity gospel. There's no theology of suffering, and so guess what? There's no hope at the end. And so he says, suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So how do I get to a hope-filled life in the midst of my suffering? I recognize that suffering is the front door that leads down the hallway to hope. Now, here's just honest this morning. <laughs> if I were God, I would have chosen a different front door. Amen. Like a different front door, like a front door to Skyliner, something like that that's attractive and appealing. At the end of it, there's hope. And please hear me when I say that we should be filled with hope in the midst of our suffering and be patient. I'm not trying to minimize anybody's suffering. It's real, it hurts, it can be incredibly discouraging. What I want you to hear is that God wants to maximize your suffering, not in the sense he wants to increase it, but he wants you to gain the most benefit out of it. It's actually part of his plan to produce hope in you. And help us understand this, James says, hey, here's a couple of examples of people who patiently, steadfastly pursued the Lord in the midst of great suffering, and the end result of it was hope for them and hope for everyone else. It gives Two examples in the text. Look at verses 10 through 11. Verse 10, it says, An example of suffering and patience, brothers. Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord, so the Old Testament prophets. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. Not the ones who quit. Who remained steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. You've seen the purpose of the Lord. How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So basically he gives two examples. He said, hey, I'm not asking you to do anything else that I haven't asked other people to do. And on the other side of their suffering, they saw how the Lord used it. And the first uh, illustration is the Old Testament prophets. Now, if you don't know anything about the Old Testament prophets, right, it's all those weird names on the left side of your Bible. Here's the cliff notes of the Old Testament prophets. What they would do is they'd go out and preach in places. And here was the message. God loves you, so repent. And here's the response of the people. We hate you. All right? Over and over and over. God loves you. We hate you. God loves you. Repent. We hate you. Over and over. And God says, hey, what they saw on the other side of that is that God used them to warn people from destruction. Yes, it was hard. Yes, there was suffering. Yes, there was persecution. But they were God's instruments of mercy in those people's lives calling them to the safety of the covenant relationship with their God. The second example is the example of Job. Job had a wife, he had ten children, had some friends, he was righteous, he was wealthy. You know what else he had? Lots of heartache. The Bible teaches God allowed Satan to have been and 
say, hey, there's nobody on the whole earth that loves you. And God said, have you considered my servant Job? You know, how, look how great he is. And basically what Satan said to, uh, is this. Yeah, of course he is. You pay him well. But remove all that blessing from his life and he will curse your name. And so God allows Satan to do that. Job's, all of his kids die. His possessions are taken away. His friends give him some really bad counsel. He's afflicted with sores from the top of his head, literally to the soles of his feet. He's at rock bottom. And his friends tell him, hey, it's your fault. He's pouring out all this heartache. And his friends said, what'd you do? And then his wife, who right, should be the greatest support he has, his wife says, hey, you should just curse God and die. And if that's not enough, just to kick him when he's down, she tells him, she says, hey, in the old King James, your breath stinketh. Look it up. It's in there. You know what the worst part is? The chapter after chapter after chapter, Job is crying out to God and God is silent. But when God speaks, here's what he reminds Job of. He said, I am present and I am sovereign and a deliverer is on the way. What's interesting about fasting about the book of Job is it's the oldest book in the Bible in terms of chronology. It's older than Genesis, if you don't know that. And in the oldest book in the Bible, right in the middle of the book, in chapter 19, Job is dead middle of his suffering. He writes these words. Listen to what he said. For I know that my Redeemer lives. In the oldest book in the Bible, in the middle of the greatest suffering that any human's ever experienced, Job is pointing people to Jesus saying, hey, life is hard, but there's hope that is coming to rescue us from sin and this world and the world to come. And I know that my Redeemer lives. Pointing people to Jesus at the very beginning of human history and saying all this suffering will be worth it when we see him. So let me ask the most practical question we can, because I like practical preaching. If suffering is inevitable, and it is, there's difficult, sinful people, and you're one of them. There's uncontrollable, hard circumstances in life in a fallen world that you're not sovereign over. Then what do we do in the meantime? We just grit our teeth, we just be miserable, and you know, one day we'll get to heaven, and we'll finally have some joy. What do we do in the meantime? Where's the answer to that? Till Jesus gets back, that's how long we're to be patient, remember? What do we do in the meantime? Well, the answer is where the answer always is. It's in the text. And so what do we do? We establish our hearts. Very quickly, look at verse 8 again. He says, you also, be patient. There it is again, right? And then listen to what he says here. Establish your hearts. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now, establish your hearts is another way, and some translations even render that verse this way. Establish your hearts is another way of saying strengthen your hearts. And so if we know that patience has to be exercised in a fallen world with difficult people and uncontrollable circumstances, there really are only two options for cultivating patience. Listen closely. Option number one is trying Option number two is training. When patience is really needed, if you haven't been training to cultivate it, the only hope you have in that moment is to try as hard as you can with your own willpower. But the Bible says this in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 5. Cursed is the man who trusts in himself. I'm going to tell you something that's going to blow your minds right now. 
No matter how hard I tried, I could not run a marathon right now. Only because I'm sick. That's the only reason, right? <laughs> Someone asked me, they said, you're an athlete, Archer. I said, well, these days, if you can be an athlete, like I can bowler? Yeah, I, I guess so. I can do something like that, right? I'm built for bowling, not for running. You know why I couldn't run a marathon? Other than being sick. Because I've not been training. You see, I can try as hard as I want, but I've not been training. And so eventually my body's going to shut down. So what is the corresponding principle in our spiritual lives? You can try as hard as you want to grit your teeth and be patient with difficult people and uncontrollable circumstances. But eventually, that suffering will go on. If it gets hard enough, eventually your willpower will crash. It'll crash. And so the opposite is training not if difficult people and uncontrollable circumstances pop up, but when they pop up. And so what does that look like when we talk about training? It's no different than the training that's required to get the empowering grace that we need for the everyday life that God calls us to live. Listen to this, all right, very closely. We pursue intimacy with Jesus or the abiding life in Christ through the routine, ordinary, daily spiritual disciplines. Prayer, fasting, solitude, silence, corporate worship, Bible reading, Bible memorization, Bible meditation, all those things. And what happens? The Bible teaches this, that God unleashes His empowering grace, not saving grace. You get all the saving grace you need at conversion. But God unleashes uh, His empowering grace or sustaining grace or sanctifying grace, whatever term you like, through the ordinary spiritual disciplines. And in doing so, spending time pursuing Jesus through the Ordinary routine spiritual disciplines every single day, guess what? Is going to be produced in me according to the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 patience. And so the goal here is not to try really hard because you know the only, there's only two outcomes of that. If you think you're really good at it, you're going to be a prideful Pharisee. If you know you're not, then you're going to be filled with shame. The goal is training every day. By pursuing Jesus. Here's what I want you to understand, and we're done. Jesus, in the call to patience, to live for God's glory, in light of difficult people and uncontrollable circumstances. Listen, hear me closely. Jesus is the bullseye. Patience is not the goal. Jesus is the bullseye. And the overflow of pursuing Jesus through the routine, daily, trying of spiritual disciplines in a pattern of your life, the overflow of pursuing Jesus through those is the fruit of the Spirit, which is patience. Guess what? People have been Christians a long time. We need the gospel. We know that Jesus is not just good for getting us out of hell one day and in heaven in the future, that Jesus rescues us from ourselves in the meantime. And unleashes his empowering grace to do what I could not do and would not do left to myself. Patience is required to love people well. And the only reason we can love is because Jesus first loved us. He patiently suffered the cross for one simple reason. Because love is patient. Love is patient. Jesus knows you completely. Not the social media you, the real you. Jesus knows you completely, yet loves you fully and patiently. What a Savior. And if you don't know Him, I'd like to introduce you to Him right now.
Would you bow your heads this morning? I want to ask two questions this morning. Number one, have you experienced the patient, forgiving love of Jesus Christ in salvation? Do you have a personal relationship? Have you been born again through a relationship with Jesus who is long-suffering towards our sins? If the answer is no or I'm not sure, then right now, right in your seat, would you pray? Thank God for His patience with you. And thank God for His provision that forgiveness is possible because of what Jesus did for you on the cross. Would you pray and receive Jesus Christ right now? For the forgiveness of your sins. Would you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? If you've yet to do that or you're unsure if you've ever done that. Right now by faith. Confess your sins. Have a desire to turn from them and receive the patient forgiveness of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Would you do that? For those of you who have done that, been walking with the Lord for a long time. Here's what you've learned. Patience is hard. It's hard to love difficult people over the long haul. It's hard not to get bitter when life feels out of control. And the answer is not be more patient. That, that's preaching law. The answer is to pursue God's empowering grace by pursuing Jesus through the ordinary disciplines that God gives us. And so right now, if you're here and you're feeling convicted, listen, that's God's mercy in your life. It's Jesus loving you so much, He doesn't want to leave you how He found you. Right now, would you just pray right now and say, Lord, forgive me for my lack of patience with this person or these people or these circumstances that have not gone away and will not go away, it seems. Would you just confess that right now? And would you just recommit yourself literally right now in the midst of dealing with difficult people, in the midst of uncontrollable circumstances, would you say, Lord, remove this bitterness from my heart and help me to pursue Jesus once again in this situation. With the full faith that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, Character produces hope, and hope will not put us to shame. Would you just recommit yourself afresh to pursuing Jesus in the midst of life's difficulties this morning? Father, we're grateful. Not only do you save us from hell, forgive us of our sins, but you give us the grace that's needed between now and heaven to deal with the suffering in life. And that's Grace has a name, and it's Jesus. And so, Father, may we be encouraged as we leave today that Jesus is our hope, not just for heaven, but in the here and now. And so, Lord, thank you for Jesus, our living hope. It's in his name we pray, because we can. Amen.